Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome back to Reward Offered, a true crime podcast looking at unsolved Australian cases that have financial rewards for relevant information. I'm your host, Amanda. On today's episode, we're going to wrap up our coverage of the current known official stance as to what happened to Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans on October 6, 1974. We will also look at the findings of the forensic testing that was undertaken for the inquest in 2013. And finally, we're going to talk about the coroner's summary of the witness evidence and his findings in the case. Again, as we go through the information, I will highlight inconsistencies and issues with the evidence that have stood out to me while researching the case. You may agree with some or none of my points, and that's okay. We're all gonna perceive the information differently based on numerous factors. Our personality traits, innate biases, lived experiences, etc. But in my opinion, the fact that we will all analyze the evidence differently is the strength of examining these cases as a community. One of you out there may just see something no one else has, purely because of the individual combination of the factors previously mentioned that you bring to the table. I will also discuss what, at least in my personal opinion, the evidence contained within the coroner's report itself doesn't show. This is our third episode examining the murders of Lorraine and Wendy at Murphy's Creek. Let's get back to the case. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. Kingsley Hunt was not identified as a primary suspect in the inquest. However, his name was mentioned throughout the material claiming he was associated with Shorty, Ungie and Donnie Laurie, Boogie Hilton and Jimmy O'Neill. The coroner states that further attention was drawn to Mr Hunt during the inquest due to Mr Neil Beadle's description of a man on the Toowoomba range as wearing a white shirt and white trousers, as though he worked for a pest control company, as well as Jocelyn Beadle's describing a man dressed in white who was very thin and looking like someone who was on heroin. She had also noticed the drum in the back seat of one of the cars, which it's claimed may have been pesticide. It also could have been a drum filled with anything, or nothing. According to the coroner's report, retired officer Ian Hamilton was recalled to the inquest and gave additional evidence that Charles Kingsley Hunt used to wear all white in the 70s. Mr Hamilton said that when he spoke to him in the 70s, Hunt had told him that he was a cotton chipper and burr sprayer. He also described Mr Hunt as not a good-looking person, with beady eyes, straggly light brown hair and being very skinny. One unnamed possible witness, not referred to in the coroner's report, but that is mentioned in Eric's first book, is a former railway employee who reported that on several successive weekends around September or October 1974, he had seen a light-coloured 1964 E.H. Holden parked in the same position on Old Murphy's Creek Road. This witness reported that for several consecutive weeks, on his way home from playing in a band each Saturday night, usually at about 2am Sunday, 
he would see not only the taillights from the vehicle, but also what looked like a torchlight, seemingly searching the nearby scrub. There is an inference here that this was unfolding at a point along Old Murphy's Creek Road that would be consistent with the vicinity of where the girls' bodies were found. However, given there is no information about this in the coroner's report, I can't be sure that it wasn't ruled out as being related. Although I would have thought that if that had occurred, that the coroner's report would have clarified that finding. On the chance that it may be relevant and hasn't been discounted, I'm including it. The obvious question here might be, if this is an accurate witness account, was this someone returning to the crime scene to search for the men's ring that was located? A trail of thought I had was, why would they only be there at that time, 2am? Surely it couldn't be so as to not be seen. From what I can gather, the paddock where the bodies were found is back from the main road, making it unlikely someone would notice you during the day. If you go there in the middle of the night and start waving a flashlight around, you could suddenly become very conspicuous. Was this person that panicked to locate something, perhaps a ring, that they were searching whenever they had the chance, including well into the night? To me, that indicates someone that either knows they're identifiable via the ring, or possibly they have some reason to be accountable for its whereabouts. Did it belong to their father or grandfather, maybe? Was it a gift from their girlfriend or wife? Who knows? But again, if this is an accurate witness statement and relevant to the paddock in question, it would seem to indicate that someone was desperate to find something if they were searching regularly in the early morning hours in the middle of nowhere. One witness who came forward during the inquest was a man named Gary John Cullinan. He isn't mentioned in the coroner's report either, but Eric does mention him in his book. Mr Cullinan claimed he had first given a statement to police in 1988, as well as a further three times over the last two decades. He said he had lived in Toowoomba all his life, and recalled an incident which he said must have happened in late 1974, as he had joined the army in January of 1975. He claimed to not know the Hiltons and Lorries, only of them through friends. He went on to recall an incident where he claimed Shorty and Ungi Laurie approached him on the street one afternoon and Ungi assaulted him, punching him square in the jaw and knocking him to the ground, where he says Ungi proceeded to kick him. The whole thing was over within seconds, he said. The incident which he witnessed in late 1974, he said occurred on what he was quite sure was a Saturday night when he and a group of friends were attending the cabaret club. According to him, it was usually the same people that attended the club so everybody was pretty familiar. On this particular night, though, there were two women he hadn't seen before. He said they immediately caught the attention of all the single men there. Apparently there was a group of six or seven men hanging around the women at the bar. Mr Cullinan identifies two of these men as Gordon Laurie and Shorty. Given the previous story, the insinuation here is that he's referring to Alan Shorty Laurie, although I think it's important to distinguish that at least from the information in Eric's book, it isn't 100% clear that he is in fact referring to Shorty Laurie and not Shorty Lawrence, who it appears, to me at least, there has been an identification confusion over at least once in this case. Mr Cullinan is said to have clarified that he was familiar with Gordon Laurie to the point that they would occasionally chat and drink a beer together. Apparently one of Cullinan's mates made his way over on a reconnaissance mission and returned to advise that the two new beauties were nurses from Gundawindi. He claimed that all the men gradually left, including Gordon Laurie, and that the women spent the last half an hour with the man he calls Shorty before he says the club closed at midnight. After it closes, he says he sees the women chatting with Shorty, 
Again, no surname is indicated in Eric's book. Outside on the footpath, before Ungi pulls up in a two-tone blue E.H. Holden, and according to Cullinan, the three of them, Ungi and the two nurses, get in the car and drive away. Exactly why these last two witnesses aren't mentioned in the coroner's report isn't exactly clear. It can't be simply due to a lack of perceived credibility from the coroner, as there are several witnesses whose evidence the coroner includes in the report, only to then say he finds zero value or truth in their testimony. In regards to the railway worker seeing a car's taillights and a wandering torchlight, as I already said, perhaps police ruled it out as being linked. But why not clarify that on the record? I think there are some reasonable assumptions we can make as to why Mr Cullinan's witness account isn't mentioned. It matches none of what we've established so far. Given the multiple witness sightings claiming to have seen the women in distress throughout the day in question, these two nurses being seen happily drinking with a group of men late into the night before casually getting into a vehicle just doesn't align with those accounts. Perhaps most significantly, from what I've been told, the cabaret club wasn't even open on a Sunday night, which would be the night relevant to Lorraine and Wendy. Further, Mr Cullinan's statement was that the event he witnessed occurred on a Saturday, so it couldn't have been Lorraine and Wendy. For reasons that will become apparent later in our examination of the case, we can't write off Mr Cullinan's claims entirely. He may not have seen Lorraine and Wendy, but he very well could have seen two nurses from Gundawindi as he claims. And those girls might be the two women who may very well have come within moments of meeting the same fate as Lorraine and Wendy, not long prior, in possibly the very same paddock. But we'll come back to that. Terence James O'Neill, or Jimmy, presented to the inquest without legal representation. At the time, he was 62, and when asked what his occupation had been in 1974, he believed he had been working at either a flour mill or a foundry, though he also admitted to working with Ungi Lorry, doing house removals around that time also. He claimed he hadn't really been good mates with anyone in 1974. He said he would occasionally drink and socialise with Ungi. He also said the same for Wayne Hilton. And while he once again said that he would occasionally drink and socialise with Shorty, he said he and Shorty didn't get on, and that whenever they drank around one another, he would wind up injured from them fighting. When asked if Shorty was violent, he responded, quote, Well, I wouldn't say he was violent, but he was quick-tempered, end quote. As well as adding, quote, Shorty was a bit of a fighter. I was no fighter, end quote. He admitted to knowing Larry Charles, saying they went to school and grew up together. He said that Larry was also mates with Shorty, Ungi and Boogie. Jimmy knew Desmond Hilton, but was not mates with him. He admitted he knew Donnie and said that they would drink together. He said he recalled Shorty driving a bluish-grey standard sedan, and later on he had a light blue E.H. Holden. He said he usually saw Donnie Laurie in a pink or blue E.K. Holden. When questioned as to if he had ever seen Ungi, Shorty, Donnie or Boogie in a green and white E.H. or E.J. Holden, he replied that no, he hadn't. He had no memory of ever seeing a car of that description associated with either the Lorry or Hilton families. Regardless of often being on the other end of violence handed out by Shorty, in his defence, Jimmy offered, quote, I couldn't say that Shorty was a violent person because I never ever seen him use violence with anyone else. Probably the only time I ever seen Shorty hit anyone besides me in my whole life would have been his girlfriend at one time, and he backhanded her and I chastised him for it and I got a flogging for it, end quote. This quote, at least at face value, doesn't seem to align with his previous statement that Shorty, unlike himself, 
was a bit of a fighter. He went on to say that he had never seen Ungi or Boogie hit a girl. He denied ever having heard any stories of Ungi, Shorty or Boogie taking girls out into the bush and raping them. Prosecuting counsel then asked about Des Hilton's claims of him being present when a vehicle was cleaned, although it seems he is mistakenly asked in reference to it being a Sunday morning, when in fact, if this car cleaning event occurred, it would have been on the Monday morning. Jimmy denied any knowledge of this event, and much like his wife, Edith O'Neill, he strangely claims to have known nothing about the murders right up until the time that he was subpoenaed to attend the CMC hearing in 2010. I readily admit that this is a stretch to believe. But hey, I wasn't even born yet, let alone living in the area after the murders to know how much coverage or local gossip was occurring regarding the homicides. But that's what he claims. Now, I've watched the 60 Minutes Australia three-part segment titled Murder at Murphy's Creek, which is available on Nine now. I will include links to that on our socials and in the show notes. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to watch that if you're outside of Australia. You may need a VPN. I'm not exactly sure. But in any case, I'll be the first to admit that Jimmy's reaction when the reporter Michael Usher approaches him and starts asking him questions doesn't look good for Jimmy. He looks defensive and angry. But to play devil's advocate, if you'd been accused of a double murder and hadn't done it, nor did you think there was any evidence to support the notion, I imagine you might be pretty pissed about being hounded by the media. How do you prove you didn't do something 50 years ago, especially if you don't know you need to defend yourself until your name suddenly comes up some 36 years after the fact? I can see both sides. His reaction could be seen as a sign of guilt, or it could just be an expression of his personality traits in the given situation. In the very least, he seems low in agreeableness. Alan Neil Laurie, nicknamed Ungi, was 63 at the time of the inquest. His father is Donald Laurie, and his mother is Evelyn Laurie. Donald Laurie is also the father of another person of interest, Donnie Laurie. Though Ungi and Donnie have different mothers, so they're only half-brothers. Ungi admitted to returning to live and being married in Toowoomba in 1974, but wasn't sure of the exact dates of either. He was asked about his association with particular men. He said he knew Des Hilton and Larry Charles, but didn't get around with them and that he knew Jimmy O'Neill and would have an occasional beer with him. At the inquest, he identified Shorty Laurie as being his uncle, but this is actually incorrect. He is Shorty's uncle, which just goes to show how confusing this family tree is, if those in it are making mistakes. In any case, he says that they were very close mates, even though there were seven years between them. There was actually three. He said they had often knocked around together in the car drinking, but that there was usually no one else with them. He admitted he knew Wayne Hilton, but never hung around him, and to the best of his recollection, could not remember ever travelling in a car with Wayne on any occasion. He then lists Donnie as being his stepbrother. Again, this is technically incorrect. He is his half-brother. When questioned about what car he drove in 1974, he claimed he had a purple E.H. Holden at the time with a white roof. Someone had painted the car purple for him, and although he couldn't remember what colour the car had been beforehand, he was sure it wasn't green. He knew Shorty had a car but couldn't remember what he drove in 1974. The vehicle he most associated with Shorty during the mid-1970s in his memory was a bluey-green E.H. Holden with a white roof. He couldn't recall Wayne Hilton ever having a car, or if Larry Charles had had one either. He confirmed he did remember Jimmy helping him in house removals for about six months, but couldn't remember the exact time period. 
He said he never knew Wayne Hilton to have worked at the sawmill at Highfields, nor could he confirm if he had purchased timber for his house removal business from that sawmill. According to him, his wife dealt with that part of the business and he just went to work. When it was suggested to him at the inquest that he hung out with Boogie, he seemed to find the insinuation comical, and when asked to elaborate on what was funny, he replied, quote, Oh, just shorty. He didn't like Hilton, that's all. End quote. Bookmark this comment from Ungie about Shorty not liking Hilton for later. We'll be bringing this up again. Ungie conceded that he wouldn't be surprised if Shorty had hit another man besides Jimmy, but insisted that he had never personally seen Shorty hit any girls or women. Ungie stated that he didn't have any tattoos on his upper arms, but did admit to having a couple of tattoos on his forearm. When asked, he denied that any of the tattoos were done at a shop in the suburb of Stones Corner in Brisbane in the mid-1970s. I'm still unsure as to what the exact relevance of these questions is, but at the inquest, many of the men were asked to show their forearms and discuss any tattoos that were present. There is a rumour that police are interested in a snake tattoo, but again, I have no confirmation of that at this stage. Although if police are in fact interested in a snake tattoo and were checking the forearms of men at the inquest... It's certainly interesting to me that Daryl Sutton specifically claimed Boogie had a snake tattoo on his forearm, which we know for a fact Boogie didn't. The coroner himself questioned Sutton's ability to identify Boogie, but Sutton recalling a forearm tattoo of a snake seems very specific. Even if it wasn't Boogie, he surely must have known someone who had that tattoo. As it is quoted in Eric's book, counsel assisting the coroner then ask Angie, quote, did you ever go to Desi Hilton's house one Sunday morning with you and Shorty turning up and Larry Charles and Jimmy O'Neill turning up in another car? End quote. Ungi says no. He didn't and he wasn't there. But one thing that frustrates me about this question, as well as every other time a similar question is asked about this event, is that the witness is being asked about the wrong day. If this car cleaning event did happen, it wouldn't have been on a Sunday. It would have taken place on the Monday. Now, is this a small detail? Yes. And no. We're talking about a double murder investigation. The details need to be correct. If the questions aren't accurate, how can we expect accurate answers? Remember, a witness is under no obligation to answer your intended question. Say hypothetically for a second that this car cleaning did happen, just as Des Hilton claims. You can even pick whichever version you want. If the witness is asked if he was there on a Sunday when he was actually there on a Monday, he can answer no and not be lying under oath or perjuring himself, because that's not the day he was there. Now, it just so happens that that Monday, the 7th, was the Labor Day public holiday in Queensland, but usually on a Monday morning, people would have work they need to be at. They might have kids that need to be at school. And just because it was a public holiday doesn't mean there wasn't still individuals that were expected to be at work. Asking someone about their whereabouts and actions on a Sunday instead of a Monday could very well elicit drastically different responses and reasoning from a witness. But back to Angie. He was asked point-blank at the inquest if he knew Daryl Sutton, and he said no. He even offered up that his mother had been a Sutton before marrying Donald Laurie. To play devil's advocate again, I have plenty of people in my family I haven't met, and I don't come from a family anywhere near the size of this extended family. Honestly, I don't think that his mother being a Sutton, on its own, can be used to indicate that Ungie would be expected to have known Daryl. Sergeant Donna Stewart, who holds a Bachelor of Biomedical Science, a Master's of Science majoring in Forensic Science, 
and over seven years' experience as a forensic scientist, undertook a full forensic review of all exhibits collected throughout the various investigations into the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. Part of this process was to ascertain which exhibits were collected from the original crime scene and which had been gathered since the remains were located. She became aware that some of the exhibits were still in existence, whereas others had been disposed of in April 2010. Don't get me started. The coroner's findings doesn't specifically list, though, which exhibits are still in custody and which have been discarded. The court found on the women's remains is described as distinctive, though not unique, and as being very similar to that used on Venetian blinds. After taking over the investigation in 1988, Detective Rouge showed the court to a long-time employee of the local KR Darling Downs Bacon Factory, who is said to have confirmed the cord was used in the factory. The coroner's findings state that both Shorty Laurie and Boogie Hilton both worked at that factory at various times, although this is disputed. Sergeant Stewart attempted to obtain a DNA profile from the cord, but was unsuccessful. Further, sticky tape that had been wrapped around the end of some of the cord was carefully removed in hopes it would have preserved trace DNA, but this too was in vain. The shell of a vehicle of interest, thought to have been purchased from the Laurie family in the late 1970s, was located and examined. It generally matched the description seen by witnesses on the Range Road, although the coroner notes that it was a common make and model, and that even the Laurie family seemed to have owned more than one such car at various times. Upon examination of the vehicle, while there was tests that indicated a possible presence of blood, it was too degraded to be forensically significant. Of particular interest was the absence of door handles and window winders, on the inside of the back doors of the vehicle. It is stated that the current owner was fairly confident that that was the condition in which he received the vehicle. The absence of handles and winders would be significant given the statement from Gail, reporting that she couldn't escape from the vehicle in which the offences against her had occurred, because these had been removed. There is no indication of who the original owner of this particular vehicle is believed to have been. But remember... Gail is the only victim who specifically mentions the lack of handles and winders in her testimony, and she names Ian Laurie, Gordon Laurie, and Shorty Laurie as being her rapists. So unless they were borrowing a mate's car, you would assume the vehicle, with no escape from the back seat, belonged to one of them. And that's the totality of the forensic evidence mentioned in the coroner's findings. Nothing regarding clothing, personal items, rings, etc., so I hold little hope that any of these items are still in police custody, as you would assume that they would have been examined and mentioned. According to Eric's first book, items collected back in 1976 included a key ring, ballpoint pens, bank book and checkbook covers, toothbrushes, shampoo, face towels, nail clippers and hairbrushes. Amongst the items discovered in the surrounding dirt were Lorraine's silver watch with her name engraved on the back and the cancer star sign pendant she wore around her neck, as well as a gold bangle Wendy sometimes wore on her wrist. Eric states the only items identified as missing from the scene were a checkbook and bank book, both belonging to Lorraine, that were never subsequently used. However, I have seen it indicated that their wallets were also never located. One last interesting point regarding items at the scene, or more specifically items not at the scene, is Eric's claim that there is no foreign physical evidence, besides the men's ring, left behind by perpetrators. No bottles, cans, cigarette packets, etc. Remember, this is 1974. No one has any concept of DNA. So I would 
personally find it hard to believe the notion that this was a regular party spot for these men. Why would they make zero effort to conceal the bodies or identifying personal items of the victims, and yet take the time to clean up their rubbish? That just doesn't make sense to me. Information relating to the murder scene that wasn't included in the coroner's findings, but that was listed in Eric's first book, is quite jarring. He indicates that fragments of skull, jaw and teeth were found strewn around the bodies, with one jaw having only two teeth still attached. If true, and if this scattering of teeth was due to impacts, the blows that had resulted in this had been ferocious. In his summary of suspects, the coroner goes on to reiterate the associations through blood and marriage between the Laurie and Hilton families, and states that by way of the evidence summarised in the preceding report, he is persuaded that members of this particular group of individuals, including but not limited to the persons of interest listed in the inquest, habitually engaged in indiscriminate violence and gang rape of young women. Interestingly, he refers to the evidence from the many unconnected women who had been the victims of these attacks as being critical to this conclusion, although I have to point out that none of those women were aware of actually named any of the persons of interest, bar one, which we'll come back to. They did, however, name other individuals. Anne named Shorty Lawrence as her rapist, which was assumed by the court to be an error and that she had actually meant Shorty Laurie, even though her description more closely matches Shorty Lawrence than Shorty Laurie. As previously described, she had said she remembered Shorty as having blondish, shoulder-length hair, a slim build and being of average height. Shorty Laurie had dark brown hair, was stocky, and noticeably short for a man at about 5'5". Shorty Lawrence, on the other hand, well, you'll find pictures of him in the case photos. Gail did name Laurie's in her attack. Gordon Laurie, Ian Laurie, and according to the coroner's report, she does list the third man as being Shorty Laurie, except the Shorty Laurie listed as a person of interest in this case didn't associate with Gordon and Ian Laurie, according to those that knew him. Remember, this is an incredibly large family. There is an assumption that just because some of these individuals shared a common surname, that they automatically associated with one another. The coroner's report clearly indicates that the Laurie and Hilton families around which the persons of interest are focused are intertwined by blood and marriage, and that's true. But it fails to show just how large and complex these families are, as shown in the family tree previously mentioned. Just because people share a surname or are related by marriage doesn't necessarily mean they spend time together, or in some cases, have even met all of their relatives. Further to this, the last victim, Carrie Ann, does indeed mention Hilton's and Laurie's, but no first names. The only Christian name she mentions is Kingsley Hunt, whose full name is actually Charles Kingsley Hunt. She too mentions a shorty, but that she thought his first name was Laurie. These are men she claims to have lived with, who raped her on numerous occasions, yet there is no reference to her using first names when identifying them. Now, without the transcript, I can't be sure that she didn't state full names at the inquest, but there might be important information to include in the final report, right? Again, I don't have the full transcript of the inquest, but given the information listed in the coroner's report, making a conclusion that there is any kind of certainty that the men that attacked and raped the three female witnesses are any of the men listed as persons of interest in this case, to me at least, seems like a stretch. At most, with the evidence as it's written, 
I could agree that one of the women lists the Shorty Laurie as an attacker, and another uses both Shorty and Laurie in her identification, but she also says she thought that Laurie was the first name. In my opinion, it certainly isn't conclusive that they are without doubt referring to Alan Shorty Laurie, who is listed as a person of interest in the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. There is at least two Shorties we're aware of, and more than half the names mentioned so far have been Laurie's. In his summary, the coroner is satisfied that both witnesses at Oxley, the bus driver and Anthony Doherty, see the girls. For reasons previously explained, I respectfully disagree that the bus driver likely saw our girls, but I do agree that Mr Doherty probably saw Lorraine and Wendy. The coroner concedes that the descriptions of the men seen with the women are far from compelling, yet he also states that they are largely consistent with Boogie Hilton and Shorty Laurie. Again, I respectfully disagree with Mr Barnes. Anthony Doherty describes the driver of the vehicle, parked at Oxley, as a surfer type, about 5'11", with a thin face, sandy brown, medium-length hair, and a muscular physique. Both Boogie and Shorty had dark brown hair, and while Boogie was about 5'10", Shorty was only 5'5". Mr Doherty's description of the man sitting in the vehicle is just vague to fit either Boogie or Shorty but also any number of other men. Given how close Mr Doherty seemed to be to this interaction, it stands out to me that he was apparently never able to identify anyone from the photo board provided to him by police. I would love to know who was on that photo board. Only seeing to increase my certainty that the bus driver didn't see the same four people that Mr Doherty did, he describes both men that he sees as having fair hair. If you go to the photos of Boogie and Shorty on the website, even though many are black and white, it's hard to see how anyone would identify the hair of either man as being fair. In regard to Mrs Sperling's sighting of the women, Lorraine in her laundry and later both women through her window, the coroner isn't satisfied that her recollection of Miss Wilson wearing a cotton dress and not a cotton blouse and jeans means she was mistaken as to the woman's identity. While she did pick a photo of Wayne Hilton from a photo board, she clearly stated that the man in the photo was of, quote, similar appearance to the man she saw struggling with the woman, a statement very similar to that made by both Mr Britcher and his wife when shown a photo lineup that included Wayne Hilton. With regard to the incident on the Range Road, the coroner finds that given the essential consistency of the central tenets of the accounts, namely that there was a green or light-coloured early model Holden pulled off to the left-hand side of the road and a man or men struggling with a woman or women and dragging her or them back to the vehicle, it is inconceivable to him that something of this nature did not occur. Further, he finds the witness account of the women being tied up is consistent with the bodies being found with their leg bones in hobbles made of cord, even if the witness saw their hands tied at that particular time on the road. The coroner finds that the fact that no woman or women involved in these assaults came forward to identify themselves as having been the individuals seen that day, especially after the widespread publicity of the case, would suggest that they were unable to do so, likely because they were dead. In my opinion, though, this is an odd assumption to make. He has already acknowledged that many of these assaults and rapes went unreported, and that of the ones that were, often unsatisfactory investigations were undertaken. It's for this reason that I struggle with the assumption that just because no one came forward to say, that was me, means that it was certainly Lorraine and Wendy that each of these witnesses saw. In any case... He firmly concludes that the women seen by the witnesses and seen being assaulted on the Toowoomba Range Road were Lorraine and Wendy, 
and goes on to note that their desperate cries for help going unheeded is one of the most heart-wrenching aspects of this terribly sad case. That, Mr Coroner, we agree on. In his summary, identifying the individuals responsible for the murders proves more difficult. The coroner states that the identification of the man or men involved is problematic, with all witnesses agreeing that they were about the same age, race, build, and general appearance as some of the suspects in this case. At this point, the coroner refers to an upper arm tattoo that Wayne Hilton had on his arm, a heart with the name Roylene in it. The coroner mentions the identification of Wayne Boogie Hilton by one witness as having been on the Range Road during the incident, but this individual admits his identification is made by a head seen only from the back and a vehicle the coroner has already stated as a common make and model at the time. The coroner himself then goes on to say that the credibility of this evidence is weakened by the witness's unconvincing account of when and how he knew Mr Hilton. The coroner's summary says there is evidence to suggest the involvement of an individual who is claimed to have formed a part of the suspect group in question. It states that Kingsley Hunt had a distinctive appearance, habitually wore distinctive clothes, and that his vocation could account for the car he was driving having its back seat removed and an industrial drum being on the floor in its place. This conclusion, it appears, is reached almost exclusively due to the testimony of Ian Hamilton and what he recalls Kingsley Hunt to have worn regularly and worked as in the 1970s, although I can't see any indication that any of his testimony was verified in any way. Finally, the coroner states that the other car seen was the make, model and colour frequently driven by one of the suspects, Alan Shorty Laurie, although there seems to be no supply of proof beyond the recollection of witnesses, some the coroner himself discredits or discounts the testimony of, that Shorty Laurie even drove a car matching that description at the time in question. The coroner points to two particular witnesses in the case, one who claims to have seen the woman after they were abducted and while they were being abused. I assume here that he's referring to Walter Laurie, the then 10-year-old. And the other, Desmond Edmonston, who claims he was given a detailed confession about the murders by a participant. The coroner then goes on to clearly state that he is of the view that neither account is reliable. He disregards Mr Edmondson's claims based on the fact that the autopsy evidence is not consistent with the supposed claims from Larry Charles that the women were beaten with sticks. Similarly, the claims that the women were raped does not seem to be supported by the crime scene evidence that the women were fully clothed with underwear in place and cord tied around each of the tibia of both women, over the top of their jeans. The coroner agrees with the sentiment that I expressed earlier, that it is unlikely that the women would have been raped and then redressed, either before or after killing them. He points out that Mr Edmonston could give no reasonable explanation for why Mr Charles had made the confession to him or why it had taken him over 35 years to disclose the information to anyone. Again, the coroner has stated that he didn't accept him as a witness of truth. In his summary of the admissions, confessions and circumstantial evidence, the coroner raises the evidence of Daryl Sutton, the man he identified as Boogie Hilton, while in the company of himself and Shorty Laurie, said, quote, I didn't mean to hurt the girls, end quote, while appearing visibly upset. The coroner reiterates that Mr Sutton advised that at no time did either man admit to any involvement in the murders, before again stating that he questions the reliability of Mr Sutton's identification of Boogie Hilton in any case. Mr Sutton was the man who, when shown a photo board that contained a photo of Wayne Hilton, could only point to Boogie and say, quote, it definitely looks like one of the Hiltons, end quote. 
And not to forget, as previously mentioned, his seemingly convenient sudden change to publicly attributing a full confession to Boogie Hilton once he was outside the walls of the courthouse and the looming threat of perjury. The evidence of Edith O'Neill and Desmond Hilton is then raised again. Both had indicated that one morning around the time of the murders, members of the group in question were acting suspiciously, removing stained carpet and having blood cleaned from the backseat of a car, which was supposedly a similar make, model and colour to one described by witnesses on the Range Road. The coroner goes on to recall the initial statements from Desmond Hilton describing these events, but oddly doesn't note that Mr Hilton also attempted to retract all of his previously supplied evidence at the inquest. Next item of evidence summarised is Albert Galvin's allegation that Donnie Laurie confessed on his deathbed to being present for the murders, though not having participated. Now, for whatever it's worth, I've been told by Donnie Laurie's brother, Artie, that he was in fact by his brother's bedside for at least three hours prior to his death, and he is certain Albert Galvin was never at Donnie's bedside before he passed. And if that's true, the deathbed confession could never have happened. The coroner then raises the evidence of Neville Shum, for who Wayne Boogie Hilton had apparently, according to Mr Shum, worked for on and off over a long period of time. It was Mr Shum who, in his 1989 statement, said that Hilton had told him on numerous occasions that he had been one of the people responsible for killing the nurses at Murphy's Creek. According to him, Wayne Hilton told him that he and his brother, remember Mr Shum had assumed it to be Trevor Hilton, had picked up the nurses, had some trouble with them, that the women had nearly got away, and that they'd ended up murdering them. Again, we know Trevor Hilton was in jail at the time of the murders, so he's out. Mr Shum indicates that this was the only brother of Boogie's he knew of. However, I've been told that there was, in fact, two brothers of Boogie's, Paddy and Willie, who also worked for Mr Shum at the time. If indeed correct, Shum was the manager of all three men, yet doesn't remember Paddy and Willie at all. At this point, the coroner reiterates he has no issue with Mr Shum's failure to identify Wayne Hilton from a photo board. Again, I respectfully disagree. It appears that the fact that Mr Shum's interactions with Mr Hilton occurred off and on over a number of years makes it less likely to the coroner that he would be adequately identifying him on a photo board. As already stated, in my opinion, seeing someone over a longer period of time would likely increase your chances to identify a random photo of them, as you would have seen variations of the individual over time, and not just recalling a person's appearance from one particular time frame. In any case, this is the same man who, unable to identify Wayne Hilton, and possibly not able to recollect two of his brothers, could apparently still readily recall the identifying factors of two different vehicles he claimed Boogie had driven at the time. Once again, there seems to be no evidence beyond witness testimony that conclusively identifies exactly what vehicle Boogie did drive, at the time in question. As to the evidence given by Miss Sandercock, the coroner points out that her account, above all others, most closely aligns with the crime scene and autopsy findings. Her statement corresponds with the injuries to both women, as well as the lack of any evidence of either woman being raped. According to the coroner, in Miss Sandercock's statement, she claims that the woman in the hotel, quote, seemed to have some attachment to Alan Laurie, end quote. The coroner then goes on to state that it's unclear if she is making reference to Alan Shorty Laurie or Alan Ungi Laurie. But what if it's neither? Remember how I said this family is vast? There was at least a third Alan Laurie, full name Alan George Laurie, who also resided in the Toowoomba area at the time. 
This, of course, by no means indicates that he was the Alan Laurie she is referring to. But did police ever look for any other individuals with that name and investigate them? Or did they just assume that it was one of the two they were already aware of? The coroner makes two good critiques of Miss Sandercock's evidence at this point. One, it seems most unlikely that someone would sit down next to an unknown individual in a hotel pub and convey such information to a total stranger. And two, he finds it unlikely that having only heard this horrid tale once, without any warning or opportunity to make notes, that Miss Sandercock would recall the story in such accurate detail, particularly given the corroboration of the details of the autopsy results. He goes on to suggest that it is far more likely that Miss Sandercock was either present herself or had overheard or perhaps had the story relayed to her more than once. I have no proof of Miss Sandercock's age, but I have been told that at the time of the murders, she would have been only about 12 or 13, which would make it less likely that she was present at the murders, but not conclusive. The coroner finds her claims of memory loss due to prolonged use of strong analgesics to be disingenuous, and finds it more likely that she is concerned for her welfare, either due to fears of retribution or prosecution. It's difficult to say whether there ever was a woman at the hotel. If you were trying to find a plausible reason for why you had information about a double murder, but didn't want to point the finger at anyone in particular, a random drunk stranger pouring out the heart is actually probably one of the more clever methods to try. She clearly knew information that wasn't public at the time, and has the only story that seems to align almost entirely with the physical evidence of the case. In my opinion, of all the evidence, suspects and witnesses, this woman is a crucial link to solving the case with what we currently have. Where she got the information she told police is key to identifying who was involved. On the final page of the inquest findings, the coroner concludes by saying, quote, Wendy Joy Evans and Lorraine Ruth Wilson died on the 6th or 7th of October 1974, at or near Murphy's Creek, and both women died as a result of head wounds, intentionally inflicted by or in the presence of Wayne Robert Hilton and one or more other persons who could not be sufficiently identified. Wayne Robert Hilton is dead. I find there is insufficient evidence to justify any other person being committed to stand trial in connection with the deaths. End quote. I'd like to highlight a notion made by Eric in his second book, as it is indeed, as he points out, very much the case that even those who were present at the inquest were only privy to the oral answers that any witnesses were willing to give in the courtroom. There would have been far more information in the form of written statements and the brief of evidence provided by the Queensland Police that the coroner would have drawn upon to form the conclusions he lists in the findings. I entirely concede that we are not working with all the evidence and information, you and me even less so, because we weren't even present at the inquest. And yet, I still don't see it. Detectives have been quoted as saying that were he still alive, Wayne Robert Hilton would be charged with the murders of Lorraine and Wendy. Perhaps he would be. But charging someone is one thing. Getting a conviction is another. With the evidence provided in the coroner's report, in my opinion... I find it likely that any defence attorney could establish reasonable doubt with regard to Wayne's involvement in these murders. Using the same evidence, from my viewpoint, I also can't see how it was ever justified that these seven persons of interest were publicly named. The way I see it, much of the evidence that is used to point the finger at those individuals not only doesn't sufficiently do that, it quite possibly points away from them. I'm not saying they aren't guilty. 
just that with the present information of which I've shared with you, I can't come to that conclusion. That in the very least, where the information has come from, its accuracy and how summations have been reached needs to be reviewed right from the beginning. I don't know if police currently have enough evidence to know for certain who murdered Lorraine and Wendy, but in my opinion, there is little to no evidence that the pieces they are currently trying to place fit this puzzle. A puzzle that, like all crimes, is on a timer. In her letter to the coroner, requesting the second inquest, Lorraine's mum Betty wrote, quote, It is a practical reality that this will be the last investigation into my daughter Lorraine's case in my lifetime. End quote. Her words would prove to be timely. On the 26th of April, 2012, not three days after posting the letter, Betty Wilson would die at their family property in Dubbo after a freak accident while gardening. Her death certificate read, Accidental Impalement. It appeared that Betty had somehow stepped back onto a three-sided steel star picket while tending to their grove of young wilga trees, and that one of the edges of the post had gouged deeply into the back of her calf muscle, severing the main artery in the process. According to Eric, Betty had been a nurse during the war and likely knew that she didn't have much time. Without a sufficient tourniquet to stem the arterial bleed, she ties a handkerchief around her calf muscle and the headstrong 86-year-old Betty heads for home, which is a not-so-close 90 metres away. Every other step of her final journey leaves its own red pool of reflection, until finally she manages to make it to the veranda of their family home before succumbing to her injury. Eric doesn't believe she fought what she inevitably knew was coming. The end. Or maybe the beginning. A deeply religious woman, perhaps Betty felt that Lorraine was now within reach, closer than she'd been in decades. What strength it must take to not only lose your child, but to have it happen in such circumstances. To publicly display your grief and anguish over the lack of justice afforded to your eldest daughter, who was so unfairly robbed from you. I've heard people refer to the ripple effect of crimes, and in particular murder. This insinuation that after an event, there is consequences that peacefully propagate outwards, inevitably affecting everything inside the edges of the given environment, has never really rung true to me. Ripples are predictable. Beautiful. The effects of murder upon those affected by crimes are more like the cracks of a broken mirror. They radiate in patterns you could never predict, never reproduce no matter how many times you drop an identical mirror. And each fault line is different. Some are small, some extend right to your edges. Many shards are permanently displaced, so even if you try to repair it, it's never the same. The pieces will never sit flush again. And with each glance into the mirror, the irreparable lasting effects of each crack are a constant reminder of how you no longer recognise the fractured, distorted image of the person looking back at you. Your reflection, forever broken, will never be what it once was. If you were a woman attacked by any man or group of men in the Toowoomba or the surrounding area within the relevant time frame, please consider sharing your story with police. Not only do you deserve justice, but details of your crime could possibly corroborate details of this crime. People, 
locations, events, patterns of behaviour, the smallest piece of evidence can make all the difference. If you or someone you know has any information you believe is relevant to the murders of Lorraine Wilson and Wendy Evans, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. The reward offered for information in this case is $250,000. In tomorrow's episode, we're going to conclude our deep dive into the murders at Murphy's Creek. We'll summarise our critical analysis of the case, as well as look at some additional information from outside sources that casts possible further doubt on the current theory of how these murders unfolded. I'm pretty well versed in the details of this crime now, and while I am well short of having any level of certainty as to who is responsible for the murders of Lorraine and Wendy, I do have my suspicions about certain individuals who based on my interpretation of the evidence, I think are more likely than others to have been involved. But I'm eager to hear what your thoughts are on the case thus far. You can find us at reward underscore offered on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Join our Facebook group, Reward Offered Case Discussions, where your polite discourse is always welcome. Our email is rewardofferedpod at gmail.com, so feel free to reach out, share your thoughts about the show, case suggestions and any ideas or constructive criticism. I'm learning the ins and outs of podcasting on the fly here, folks, so be kind. I'll no doubt still be working on the compiled visual accompaniment when this episode airs, so again, for any photos of media referred to in the episode so far, check out our socials. Please remember, if you have specific information regarding individuals that you believe is relevant, call Crime Stoppers. Don't share it on our socials. And most importantly, guys, share the podcast. Discuss the case. Be that annoying, true crime-obsessed family member, friend or colleague. All of these cases, including Lorraine and Wendy's, deserve the same exposure as Maura Murray, John Binet, Abby and Libby of the Delphi murders. Don't get me wrong, I love diving into those cases as much as anyone else. But we need to start giving the unsolved crimes in our own backyard the same attention and consideration. If you're enjoying the show and haven't already, please subscribe to Reward Offered on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your true crime fix. And if you're feeling generous, we'd really appreciate if you'd leave us a positive review. As the new kid on the block, every little bit does help with the algorithms, which will assist us in getting these cases heard by more people. And with that, it's a wrap. We'll see you guys tomorrow for the next episode of Reward Offered. Thanks for listening. my points and that's I don't know whose muffler that is but if I find him this guy driving around with the muffler has left his house like 60 times today he may not make the 61st now there's a plane flying over I actually live pretty close to an airport so I'll deal with that one Please have worked. Please have worked that whole time I was yabbering on. <laughs>